0: Hello and welcome back to the Pave the Way podcast, a joint initiative with ragiri Foundation and the National Institute of Urban Affairs, where I, your host Akash Basu, speak with mobility experts and people with interesting ideas around the globe on all kinds of issues and ideas surrounding sustainable mobility and transport planning. On the podcast today, we have American political cartoonist from St. Paul, Minnesota, Andy Singer. Uh, He is a man who can truly tell a story through one picture. He has many cartoons and caricatures highlighting the failure of our transport systems in addressing the real problems. Today, I have the honor of getting his thoughts and picking his brain on topics relating to sustainable mobility, the role of the bureaucracy in the issue, both in India and the USA, and much more. How are you, Andy?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me on your podcast.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Uh, let's just get started. So, sure. um what is your perception on the current global problem with mobility or rather lack of attention or resources dedicated to sustainable mobility options? Um,
1: I think as, as i said to you before, I think we're burning too many fossil fuels and um, we're expending too much energy and uh, expending too many resources and devoting too much of our space and time uh, to moving people and goods. And uh, the reason for this is that we're addicted to sort of automobile uh, and highway-based, uh, highly uh, mechanized and technology-intensive transportation systems. And um, and also we're addicted to city and urban planning that's based around uh, those ideas of mobility. Um, and the system and the industries and government agencies that sort of support this system tend to monopolize transportation dollars and resources and leave very little money left over for um, sustainable mobility options like bicycling and walking and public transit um, and leave very little money left over for progressive changes in land use and urban and regional planning. Hmm.
0: It just sometimes seems silly, doesn't it? The fact that we have this major global issue, one that is clear as day, one that is clearly adding to the global warming crisis. And yet the higher-ups, our bureaucracy, are often constantly implementing systems and policies that feed into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not... we've been aware of the problem since I was in college, you know, since before I was in college, we've been aware of the problem for like since the 1950s Um, and people have been writing about it and making cartoons about it and, you know, bringing attention to it and nothing changes uh, or very little changes. And I think the reason for that, I mean, one one of my major issues is funding structures. Um, We've set up these funding structures, at least in the United States. I don't know what the situation is in India, but, Um, In the U.S., we financed all of our highway building with um, gas taxes. We we created fuel taxes. And in Europe, um, people pay a lot more than the United States in fuel taxes. I mean, fuel there, I don't know what it is now, but I would guess that it's at least eight, the equivalent of $8 a gallon. I don't know what that is in liters. Um, But in the United States, it's maybe only $4 a gallon, three or $4 a gallon. And so Europe has much higher uh, fuel taxes. And in addition to having higher fuel taxes, they have laws in place that allow that, the revenue that is generated by that to be spent on public transport or to be spent on bicycling and walking projects or to be spent on anything that might improve a transportation situation. Um, and in the United States, the, the automobile companies lobbied back in the 1930s and 40s when these laws were put in place to prevent that money from being spent on anything but highways. And so, um, in, in almost every state constitution, each state in the United States has its own constitution. There's a constitution for the entire country but then each state has its own sort of founding document or constitution. And in most states, there are amendments to those constitutions that were put in between the 1930 and 1950, that mandate that fuel taxes and toll revenues have to go to highways. Um, Mm -hmm. And the most extreme example was, um, I'm not sure if this has been amended recently, but until recently, uh, the state of Alabama, for example, um, it actually had an amendment that forbid the state from spending any money on, on public transport. My God. So um, I don't know if you've ever heard of in, in the United States, a, a very sort of uh, watershed moment in the civil rights struggle was the Montgomery bus boycott, um, which Martin Luther King jr helped to bring about. This was in the 1960s and the city of Montgomery, because of this is in Alabama and because of of this amendment or this law, um, they're down to like eight or we're down to like eight bus lines in the whole city. Um, and they only operated like Monday through Friday and part of Saturday. And, uh, you know, it was ridiculous um, because the, the state couldn't subsidize them at all or spend any money on them at all. Um, and so that The legacy of those laws is one of the reasons I think that the United States keeps building highways um, and doesn't spend more uh, money and attention and resources on public transit and on better urban planning and on bike and pedestrian issues. Um, and so that's, that's you know, discovering, I don't know what the situation is in India, but I'm going to guess that in the bureaucracy, that the devil is often in the details, um, you will find that there are certain laws or things in place that are often put there by the automobile industry, which is tremendously powerful. Um, I mean, uh, India, like Tata motors, I don't know, but they, they've been around for a long time. Um, and in the U S it's like general motors was the, the evil boogeyman for a long time. There was a a guy who used to be the, the head of it named Alfred Sloan, who, who, um, he was a fascist. Um, and, uh, he did a lot of things to destroy public transit in the United States. So,
0: yeah, I mean, in India, it's, it's, uh, the uh, road systems and transport systems are built around getting from point A to point B as fast as possible. And generally you will see that people are happy. And, you know, I started working on these issues, um, not that long ago. I mean, I started working where I am now, not that long ago. And initially, yeah, I, I, I saw all these, the roads widening and the footpaths getting smaller and less space and nothing being made for cyclists. And I didn't take into consideration that, you know, this is really bad and this can be really negative for people, for any option, for any sort of sustainable mobility options. So now that I'm working on these issues, it's awful, right? And it continues to happen. We will continue to put our resources into making point A to point B transport as easy as possible. We'll widen the roads, we'll make more underpasses, we'll make just our systems will always gear towards these policies. And the problem is that people are happy. The problem Well they
1: they're happy but they're not happy. I mean if you poll most people, they are tired of traffic congestion. Mm. Uh, And my guess is I've been to Mumbai and uh, in New York City, for example, if for a while the average vehicle speed in midtown Manhattan in New York City was five miles an hour, and that you can ride a bike faster than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because automobile traffic congestion was so bad. Um, and uh, they finally had a mayor, Michael Bloomberg, who appointed a, a woman, Jeanette Khan, as transportation commissioner. And they did a lot of they stopped designing the city around what they call LOS or level of service for cars. Um. So, so the the sort of metric by which we've been designing cities, uh, and I'm guessing this is true in India as well, is LOS level of service, mm. and that means how fast a car can get from point A to point B, or how fast a car can get through an intersection, or something like that. And um, I think planners and people started to realize that this is an absolutely insane way to design cities um, because. Um, First of all, you don't even achieve your goal, which is to, you know, the more you widen roads, the more people drive in and the worse traffic congestion gets. Um, And there's what what planners call induced demand, where the more roads you create, the more people move further out from the city and start driving. And then pretty soon, traffic congestion is as bad as when you started. Um, And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely insane. I don't think people are even happy about it. And that's the thing is like, um, you know, we're we're sort of destroying the planet with hypermobility and people aren't even happy. They're not even enjoying themselves <laughs> while they do it. You know? It's like they're they're bitching about the traffic and, and uh, you know, they're, they're not even having a good time, you know. I mean, I've been on train, even the, the public transport, in both cars. Well, one time in Mumbai, I was, I was there for a, a car-free day event that a guy um, named uh, Kalpesh Parekh, uh, he, he organized in um, 2011. And he was just a guy. He, he, um, he worked, uh, I, I believe he was like a, a, a marketing manager for a beverage company. And, but he rode a bicycle and, you know, saw how ridiculous the situation was in Mumbai. And um, he knew other people in the alternative mobility community, you know, other cyclists and um, people. And uh, and so they put together this event. And it, um, in many cities in the West, uh, in the United States, but also in Europe, and I think also in other parts of India, they have um, like marathon days, or they have, um city bicycle tours so like in Montreal they have in Canada they have the Tour de Lille which is this like a big city bike tour Um, or in New York City they have the century ride once a year and and they close off all these roads and people can ride through all five boroughs of New York City and um, so he was trying to do the same thing in Mumbai and he created this route and a map and I think he got like several thousand people for the first one like four or five thousand people but um, it, he wasn't able to sustain it. It, it only went one year. Um, and they, the, he couldn't get enough, uh, more funders or people to renew it for another year. Um, but when I was there, I mean... The traffic was insane. We, we went to various places and it was like, um, at one point we were just sitting there not moving at all, you know, for like, <laughs> like 20 minutes, you know, it was yeah. like, we could have walked to where we were going faster yeah. than we could have driven, except that there was no way to walk because as you said, like the, the sidewalks or the, they don't even have sidewalks. It's just like a white line that demarcates where you can walk. And it's like getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where over this one bridge, there was no. Pedestrian uh, walkway at all, um, mm-hmm. and so we had to like to get over this bridge. We had to wait in traffic forever. Anyway,
0: yeah, I mean, yeah, I think uh, it's certainly true that most parts of India still have major congestion, and nobody's really happy with that. But I think so. Where I stay, uh, Gurugram, we've actually we've improved our roads to the point where congestion levels are much lower. We've just created all these systems by widening roads, by forming these places where underpasses with no, um, no speed breakers, no crossings, people can move much faster and all that. But what has happened is now there is basically no infrastructure for any people on these roads. Forget bike lanes. It's that, you know, one of the most popular roads in all of Gurgaon is something called Gulf Coast Road. And it was more recently converted into two, two six lane highways on either side of the road. And there are like families with their children, you know, lower social, people from the lower socioeconomic class have to cross these roads every day. And it's, and you see these cars going at like 100 kilometers an hour, at least sometimes. Yeah, it's the,
1: it's the same thing in the United States. I mean, we have all these huge boulevards. Um, people here call them strodes, um, because mm. they're not really a street and they're not really a road, they're a strode. <laughs> and, um, you know, there will be like, there will be four lanes, five, and this is in an urban area. Um, you know, four to six lanes. And um, yeah, if you if there's a bus stop, or a school or something on the other side of them, um, that people want to get to, um, they get killed. Uh, You know, and there's uh, every year here, and just in my city, which is a very small city, um, we have uh, dozens of people who who are killed by cars, you know, sometimes little kids, you know, who are just trying to go to school. And, um, And drivers don't stop and they don't signalize every intersection on these things. Sometimes you have to go a mile between traffic signals to get across one of these roads Um, or they don't have signals
0: at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's really awful. And I mean, obviously, you must know, like where I am, Gurugram is the most polluted city in the world. And um, also, India is obviously the home to the most deaths worldwide every single year. I think between 2010 and 2020, um, over a million lives were lost on our roads, over five million injured. So just completely crazy. Just a note on that, on the car-free day, so at Raghiri Foundation, actually, just uh, late last year, we completed eight years of Raghiri Day. And Ragiri Day is our car-free initiative, where on Sunday mornings, we open the roads for about four, three to five hours, anywhere in that range. And we just let people come and do whatever they want, right? Walk, cycle, people will host activities like yoga and Zumba and stuff like that. And we had really good footfall numbers. Obviously, with COVID coming around, that the conversation died out a little bit and we restarted after, and it was and it's been great. we've again got our numbers up and I think this idea of allowing people to reimagine their streets as being something else, you know I think it's fun, yeah, I think that's
1: that's really important. I think that whenever you do these kind of events where people are out and get to walk down a street that they don't usually get to walk on or bike on a street that they don't usually get to bike on, they see how it could be and and I think you know getting people to envision how things could be is is half exactly. the battle mm-hmm. and um and so yeah i think these events are really important in terms of making broader political progress on on getting things done and i think also whenever you can get legislators or people in government to come ride with you on some horrible street just mm-hmm. to see what it's like uh again i think it's it's really eye opening for them um to see you know, how things are. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yes, what you're saying about like, um, in the United States, we, I forget what it is, you know, we're around 40,000, between 35 and 40,000 people a year die on us highways. Um, and you know, hundreds of thousands are injured, you know, permanently crippled or maimed or, but, um, but, Uh, worldwide I know that it's it's surpassed a lot of diseases as being one of the leading killers of people um especially Mm -hmm. children um and it's yeah it's totally insane it's totally wrong I mean I think as a human right uh like the the WHO or, or um the, uh, the United Nations should recognize the ability to cross a street in a city or a town as being a human right. I mean, I should be able to cross the street. <laughs>
0: you know, that's, it's ridiculous. But they don't. No, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the numbers are sometimes, I mean, it's just however many you think they are. If you don't know the facts, you'll probably underestimate them. Like we at Ragini Foundation, what, we used to run a program called Haryana Vision Zero sure you've heard what Vision Zero itself is, but it's just this, it's, it's a project named after saying that we are going to try and achieve zero fatalities on our roads in these areas. So we are doing it all around Haryana. We ran it for a couple years and, you know, just redesigning the street, educating more, raising awareness more. And based on our data, we were able to save countless lives. But once the COVID crisis hit the first lockdown, which was March of last year, March of 2020, they shut down the project because they said that we have to dedicate our resources to COVID. But how how can there be something more important than dedicating resources to saving lives? Right? It's the same idea. You need to... Yeah,
1: here in, in the US and I I think also in Europe, they actually have used the COVID pandemic as a way to get more space for pedestrians and bicyclists. So in my city, um, the mayor designated three areas uh, where a lot of people walk um, or bike, Uh, they closed off a street adjacent to those three areas because what was happening was so many people were coming out to walk or bike during the COVID pandemic because they were working at home um, or uh, or, just needed someplace to get out and recreate. Um, that they weren't able to maintain enough distance between each other, you know, hmm. from a public safety point of view, and so people made the argument of, oh, you got to close these streets so people have more distance to walk. Um, and so the, the, I know that in a bunch of cities, it was they used this as leverage to actually get more stuff. Um, but you know, by saying, oh, it's a public, you know, if you're not giving people enough space to walk, then it's a public safety, you know, COVID's going to spread, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I'd love to know your thoughts on the whole uh, electric cars narrative that this is the future that's what I'm going to Oh, me. I I
1: I think I said to you I mean I <laughs> I don't believe in electric cars. I think electric cars and driverless cars are just the latest effort by the auto industry to try to remain relevant and to uh And to put off the moment of reckoning when when people realize that, uh, no, you know, uh, cars are the problem. It doesn't matter whether they're powered with electricity or gasoline engines. Um, And there is some yes, there is some marginal increase maybe in in pollution and efficiency with electric cars. But it's not as great as people think. Um, and that's even assuming that you're generating all of the electricity with green sources like wind or or um, sun or solar power or hydropower. And in fact, in most cases, we're still generating the electricity with coal and, and gas and stuff like that. So it's it's actually less efficient than a gas engine mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for various reasons. When you do uh, the important thing with all these things is to do what they call a life cycle analysis, where you look at a technology. From its its manufacturing process through its life cycle to its disposal and recycling. And when you look at an automobile, for example, um, a lot of the pollution that a car creates is sort of baked into its manufacture um, and disposal. So uh, it, it varies tremendously, but there have been a number of studies that show anywhere from like uh, twenty to forty um, percent of the co2 and uh, other kinds of pollutants that a car is going to emit during its lifetime happen during its manufacture and its disposal and with electric cars because they require uh cobalt and coltan and lithium and all these sort of rare metals and um or some of them are rare metals and Um, and mining and various other energy inputs, they're actually more energy intensive on the manufacturing and disposal recycling side. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, the amount of, you know, the, the efficiency increase over a gasoline engine, it's just not as great as people think. And if you're not simultaneously reducing the overall vehicle miles traveled in your country, then you're not really reducing carbon emissions, Mm -hmm. Um, you know? So, and, and in the United States, I don't know what's going on in India, but like in the United States, we have these guys like Elon Musk, who's, who's sort of a proselytizer for the automobile industry and and for technology. And he um, they're pushing this stuff, but they're not uh, suggesting that we should stop building roads. So my state, just one state, and we only have um, between five and six million people in my entire state, um, they're they're, uh, they're still adding anywhere from 50 to 100 lane miles of road per year in the state uh, to the highway system. And they're spending all this money to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And this hasn't stopped at all. Um, and so uh, they have, there's a project near me, like an out in one of the suburbs, right now, where they're widening a highway. They're adding two lanes to it for just like four miles or five miles, and it's costing them 287 million dollars to do this. And it's just it's ridiculous. And they will those two lanes will fill up like that. You know, they'll they'll fill up, and uh, people will be complaining about traffic congestion all over again. Um, and they will have blown 287 million dollars. And um, and so until you stop that, until you uh, uh an idea that I really love and has been around for a long time is is states and cities and countries and the world needs to institute what they call a paving moratorium. And that's a statement that we're not going to build any new roads. We've built enough roads. You know, we'll maintain the roads we have maybe, but we're not going to add any more lanes, we're not going to add any more parking lots, we're not going to add, you know, and, and that's sort of the first step. Because honestly, if if we really want to, you know, get to like, sustainable carbon outputs, we need to like, half our current vehicle miles traveled. Um, and we're not even we're not even with it keeps growing every year. And we're not even making an effort at like reducing road building. Um. So so I, I just view I view um, electric cars as just kind of a, an effort by the auto industry to sound like it's being green, um, but it's not really being green.
0: Yeah, I think the, the electric cars narrative is making us stray away too far from the actual issue and is honestly not giving enough credit or attention to the actual emission alternatives. Right. If we had more clean, open spaces, more people would want to do their commutes on foot or on cycle. If we improve our public transport systems, people might not want to go out and spend all that money on a car. Let's say it can reduce future car purchases. Look at cities yeah, like if we
1: If we spent all this money making cities nice places to live mm-hmm. um, in the United States, we have a tremendous amount of sprawl. I mean, India, at least around its major cities, has some density um, of population, but the United States, we have like, we waste land. I mean, we have these cities and places that are really sprawled out and people living in single family, suburban tract homes. Um, and, uh, so they drive everywhere. And, uh, and yeah, if we, if we focused, there's a, a, a famous line by, um, I forget who it is, if it's Lewis Mumford or it's some other urban planner, but um, that nothing you can do with transportation um, is as effective at um, getting people where they need to go as lessening their need to travel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, if you can lessen people's need to travel by good zoning in your city and putting like jobs and um, services and things near where people live, or, um, you know, if you can, any, any way that you can, you um, you know, make communities essentially more walkable or bikeable, you, then you don't need all this like uh, high-tech transportation. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, I mean, that in, in the electric car debate is sort of distracting from that basic idea that, exactly. that needs to be focused on.
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like we have case studies of successful, of open spaces successfully been made for the people, right? Like Denmark and Netherlands and Europe. It's not yeah. like it's not a new idea. We just have to sort of follow suit in different ways. We need to figure out how they did it, why this, it where the air is so much cleaner, their roads are so much safer, but it's just not done, and that narrative is not pushed. And I feel like that's it's quite quite depressing.
1: Um, Going back to my thing about where gas taxes and toll revenues go, and I would say that's something to look at is, you know, wherever you are in India or anywhere is, is, you know, automobiles are generating a lot of revenue because for some people, because um, they pay fuel taxes and they pay tolls and they pay motor vehicle licensing fees and all this kind of stuff. And where's that money going you know, if it's going back to more road building, then you're just going to get more highways and more car infrastructure. But if you're able to spend it, it's a huge pot of money. If you're able to spend it on public transit or on other things to subsidize alternatives to driving um, and view these taxes as what they call sin taxes. Um, so like the taxes on alcohol or cigarettes were meant to like um, deter people from smoking or drinking. And then you were spending that money on like, I don't know, uh, alcohol treatment programs or something, you know, mm-hmm. but, but um, if you view the gas tax and toll revenues the same way, and Europe is able to do this and it, and it yeah. has to do with the fact that in Europe, the transit agencies um And public transport, uh, public ownership of public transport predated um, public ownership of highways. So after World War I, all of the streetcar systems and the rail systems and everything in Europe were bombed and destroyed because of World War I. And so um, the the national government of France or of Germany or of Denmark had to take over the railway systems and run them. Mm -hmm. And so Um, They had all this, uh, all these things had been nationalized in the 1930s. Um, And so when they, after World War II, when they had all this Marshall Plan money and stuff like that, they were able to put it into these agencies. They had public agencies that they could pump some of this transportation money into. And those agencies could compete with highway agencies on an even playing field. Um, And they didn't have these dumb laws like we have in the United States that, that prevent toll and gas tax revenue from being used on other forms of transportation um mm-hmm. and so that's that in my opinion that's why like they're more um they're ahead of us are more progressive on that score Absolutely. Um, but but it, to make those changes are you know it, it's politics and it's um it takes a lot of organization and political willpower to to make that happen
0: mm-hmm.
1: for a variety of reasons yeah
0: um, I also want to mention that you, uh, some of your work on these issues. So you have written two books, namely, I think, Cartoons and Why We Drive. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit more about why and what is, you know, what do you talk about in these books?
1: Uh, cartoons was, um, there, there used to be, um, there used to be uh, a publication called the Auto Free Times, in um, Northern California, that a a guy named Jan Lundberg started. And Jan Lundberg was a part of the Lundberg family. um, And they are famous for doing analysis of oil industry. (laughs) But he was like the black sheep of the family who was, he hated cars and hated oil industry. And so he started the Auto Free Times. and, And he kind of came up with this idea of a paving moratorium and he was promoting it. This was in the 1990s. And, um, and I started drawing cartoons for that. And through that, I met another guy who worked for him for a while named Randy Gent, who in turn started, um, car busters in Europe. And, um, the, I forget what the group is called in Europe or was called. It was like, um, world card free network. And, um, I think there's a guy actually in India now, Eric Britton, who used to work for World Car Free Network, who's trying to do stuff, developments, you know, uh, alternative transportation development stuff. But um, anyway, they they had uh, a magazine and they had various websites and information and stuff like that. And I drew a lot of cartoons for them. And at a certain point, I put all these cartoons together into a book, which uh, which Randy Gant designed. And we put lots of quotations about um, automobiles history and, you know, sort of crazy facts about cars, um, and a bunch of essays and stuff. And that was the first book and that was released in 2001. And it was pretty popular amongst a tiny circle of people who are, who are into these issues like transportation planners and stuff. And, um, and then I got more involved in activism, um, I had been living in the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 1990s uh, when the first critical mass rides happened. I don't know if they ever have those in India, but um, they, so. critical mass rides were where a whole bunch of cyclists, you would just say, um, put out a notice on, on email or on social media and you would say, uh, okay, if you're a cyclist, uh, you know, meet at five o'clock or six o'clock at this spot in the city. And we're just going to go for a ride. And so um, basically uh, as many as thousands of people would meet on their bikes in the spot and they would clog traffic basically because and we would just ride wherever we wanted to ride. Um, And it was sort of a, a moment of trying to get more visibility for bikes and bicyclists um, and to sort of force cities to put in more bike accommodations. Um, so it was sort of a direct action thing. Um, and it still goes on, I think in some places, uh, I know they still have them in Brazil, like in Sao Paulo. Um, but, uh, uh, cause I've been, I've, I've ridden in one in Sao Paulo, but, uh, but they used to be a way in the early 2000s and the 90s for if you were in some new city, you could meet other people who were into cycling, because hmm. you could just look up and see where the critical mass was in that city. Hmm. Um, so I was involved in that. And I got involved through that and other kinds of activism. And then um, since I moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, um, I've also been involved in alternative transportation activism and, and I'm now the co-chair of our local bicycle coalition, which is like a, an advocacy, we're an advocacy group in the city. Um, we pushed the city to adopt a, an actual bicycle and pedestrian plan, um, with specific streets and specific routes and everything. We got that passed in 2015 and, uh, now, um, The way, because our city doesn't have a lot of money, the way we implement this plan is whenever a street comes up for repaving, um, if it's designated on this bike plan as having bike lanes or having some sort of bicycle infrastructure, then they have to put that on the street when they repave it. And so uh, we try to turn out people to public meetings to say, you know, you need to put this on the street. Um, and, you know, if you can get like 20, 30, 40 or more bicyclists to show up for a, a public hearing, um, then, you know, you get what you want and you get people to write into their city council members and to the mayor's office and say, you know, yeah, we want this. Um, and so that's kind of what our group does. And um, and as a result of that, I've encountered I've spent a lot more time with engineers and um, people in public works departments and uh, both at the state, the city level, the county level, and the state level. Um, and so that's, I've gotten more familiar with laws around all this stuff. And uh, uh, there you go. And that's my interest. And then as a result of all that experience, I wrote the second book, which is Why We Drive, which partly was um, I used to do after the first book, after cartoons, people asked me to come and do slideshows of cartoons. Um, and talk about transportation issues. And so over time, I kind of developed this slideshow. And the second book is basically like a book version of the slideshow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's talking about transportation politics and like all the different um, historical and political angles to uh, to road building and automobiles and uh, and how those in turn influence politics. So in the United States... They'll show after every presidential election, they'll show these maps of the U.S. that show how each county voted, whether that county was a red county, which means it voted for a Republican like Trump, or it's a blue county and voted for a Democrat like Obama or Biden or whatever. And you start to realize very quickly that um, the Democrats and sort of more progressive interests uh, control cities and control the, the higher the density of population, the more likely that place is to vote for Democrats and the less density of the population, the more it tends to be conservative and vote for Republicans. And so it's a way in which automobiles and automobile oriented planning has actually influenced the political process. Because mm-hmm. um, people don't, they, they don't interact with each other If you're living out in a suburb or in an exurb of the United States, you don't see other people who are different than you on public transit. Um, You don't you don't hear sort of alternative viewpoints necessarily on uh, there's fewer options for radio or for um, uh, media, other kinds of media. Um, Your your sort of view of the world is from a car windshield. You know, it's much more constrained. And so that influences how people um, vote. Uh, so I talk about that. I talk about, um, I talk about these things with these, these laws that per, ha, dictate how you can spend fuel taxes and, and uh, tolls. Um, and I talk about uh, you know, just the impact of the car on the landscape.
0: Um, so I think you wrote uh, cartoons in 2001 and then uh-huh. Why We Drive in 2013. Um, we're in 2022 now. Would you say that there has been any major change in the systems and uh, is it moving in the right direction?
1: No, you know, <laughs> I mean, I wish I could say there I wish that, you know, there have been small changes. You know, I think it's it's really I th- it's very much on a, a city, um, a city by city basis, um, I think more than anything else. Uh, you see things like New York City. I grew up in New York City, um, but had not bicycled there for a long time. And recently this summer, my wife and I went there and uh, it's fantastic. It's actually a really nice place to ride a bike now
0: because
1: hmm. um, they have all these protected bike lanes everywhere. Um, and they, they did them on the cheap. They, they um, use parked cars to protect the bike lanes, So they just move the cars away from the curb. Um, and created a a safe space essentially between the parked cars and the curb for 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 cyclists um and so they really in in like an eight-year period or something during the bloomberg administration they really transformed new york city and i see that in other cities um where i live i'm uh I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is across the river from the Minneapolis. So we're called the Twin Cities because we're right next to each other. And you would know Minneapolis because maybe um, because that's where George Floyd was killed by police mm. in 2020. Um, but Minneapolis has has actually improved uh, biking. Unbelievably, they're one of the um, top mode share cities for the United States. They're between five and six percent of people before COVID were getting to work by bike, which is really small compared to the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. um, where it's like 40 Mm percent. But it's, but for the United States, it's very high. I think the highest city in terms of a percentage of commuters who get to work by bike is Portland, Oregon, and that's around Mm six percent. But, um, but anyway, a lot of cities have, have, you know, gotten religion, so to speak, about. Um, about making themselves more walkable, more bikeable, more pleasant places to be, um, at least pre-pandemic, and um, and so I notice a change there. You know, in terms of overall national policy, I don't notice that much of a change. And we're simultaneously outside of cities, we're still building these suburbs um, and suburban communities at breakneck speed, and we're still building roadways and. Um, and and doing these really stupid development patterns which are making us even more addicted to oil and cars and um you know but
0: but you keep trying <laughs> what can you do <laughs> um so i guess um i'm stubborn one... <laughs> so i you know
1: i <laughs> i'm gonna keep like Plus, plus, like it's fun to bike. I mean, I don't, I don't know about where you are, but like, I would rather get to where I need to go tonight. Um, where I live is very cold. Uh, so, um, I'm not sure what it is in cel- in Celsius. I think it's like uh, minus 16 degrees Celsius. Here. Jesus, okay, yeah, and so. Uh, I went to go get groceries tonight, food for mm. the house, you know, for like the week. So I went to the grocery store, which is about two miles away. And so, uh, I have a cargo trike, like, a um, uh, it's got two wheels in front and one wheel in back. So I can go on ice and snow, no problem, um, without mm. falling down. And, uh, and it's fun, you know, it's like, <laughs> I'd much rather go to this grocery store that way than drive there. Mm. Um, you know, uh, 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 and it keeps me in shape. Like I, I don't, uh, I'm an old dude. I'm like 56 years old. Like, but, uh, I I don't go to gyms or work out or anything like that, but, um, just the mere fact of not owning a car means that I get some exercise. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I like, I find it more enjoyable. So I, I keep, I keep doing this because, Uh, because I want people to change, but also because it's like more enjoyable to live that way than Mm -hmm. I think.
0: I mean, I think you highlighted so many points in the value of cycling. I mean, it's complete cycling is just completely underestimated, right? It's better for the environment. It is fun. It can keep you fit. It can get you from A to B and in many cases, the same amount of time as a car can. I think in, in India, there is basically no infrastructure for bicyclists and it's really bad i on almost all of our roads cyclists have to share the road with cars and there's generally no lane set up for them not even like a shared lane it's just yeah no i I
1: was i biked in mumbai you know i Mm -hmm. I saw it it was like you had to surf with traffic on your bike kind of yeah Um, and and it was absolutely it was crazy but Mm -hmm. one thing i observed in mumbai which i don't know how in other cities how it is but um is that there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people riding bikes. Mm. It's just that they're like delivery guys, and mm. um, you know they're they're not um, they're not wealthy people necessarily. And you know the one thing that I think of when I see all that is like if you could organize all those people, um, you know if you could get all those people to to bike down to like city hall or something. Mm. Um, you'd have a lot of people, you would have tens yeah. of thousands of people. And like, you might get elected officials to listen to you because, um, but, but that requires, you know, a, a certain level of political organizing. Um, hmm. That's like cross caste or cross, you know, cross culture, you know, cross cultural. Um, but there are a lot of people biking. I mean, I I took pictures when I was there, this was in 2011. And like, um, there are all kinds of bikes and, um you know delivery bikes for water for um gas Mm. for you know that have like these big bins and um you know it's fascinating or people carrying like these incredible loads on um on uh what is it like uh I forget the main Indian bike companies but Honda makes stuff um yeah like the double butted top tube Hmm. or or double um, uh uh, double top tube you know Mm. and like um
0: uh, anyway I, I don't know it's just that fascinated me yeah I mean it's I think it's fair that people are discouraged because we also do know the sheer number of people that are killed and injured that are on cycles it's I mean I, I guess I haven't been to Bombay in a while and I I live in my little circle here and I see it but it's you know there's bikes going at like fifteen kilometers an hour around cars swerving around them at like eighty, and you see this in a car you don't need to look at the numbers and you see it and you can and in your head it's like, yeah, I would not want to cycle on the road I'm not going to do my commutes or get my groceries on the road if you like I have enjoyed cycling in the past and I mean if I did want to I would have to cycle inside my residential area you know you can right. take rounds around here and it's it's not quite the experience. The experience is getting out and cycling larger distances, but it really isn't safe. You know, kids, parents will not let their kids cycle on our roads. People won't, yeah, I mean, sure, unless sure. it's a necessity. And we need well, to this adjust. Is how the, our... This
1: is how the United States was in like the 1970s or, huh. um,
0: you know, that's and then people. A sad fact were... That's where we are now.
1: Well, I mean, there was various waves of kind of activism of people trying to get space. I mean, it's all about trying to get space on the street. Um, and, and another thing related to your earlier comments about um, the pandemic is I think cities have kind of realized that um, you, you are not competing with other cities in your country for jobs, you're competing with Denmark you're, com- or you're competing with copenhagen you're competing with stockholm you're competing with paris and 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 vice versa they're competing with you and and it's like if you want the smartest people and the best workforce and what to want to live and come work in your city you have to make that city nicer place to live um and and i i think um I think, yeah, that's the first and biggest battle. And the thing about it is I will say that, like, when you win one of these things, the next one becomes easier because people see that the first one happened and that, like, the sky didn't fall. I mean, people will fight when you say, like, oh, I want to take a lane on this street for bikes and pedestrians people will fight you tooth and nail. There'll be all these like business owners who will be like, oh, where are my customers gonna park? You know, um, uh, you know oh, like there'll be gridlock, we'll all die. You know, they'll, they'll like, um, but if you're able through like pure political force to get it implemented and people see that it's successful, Um, then the next one's easier and then they get easier and easier and easier. And we had that experience here in St. Paul. We didn't have a bike plan until 2015. And our first big battle was like a half a block from my house. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to take two and a half miles of parking away. And so all the business owners and landlords and people went berserk. Um, But we won. We got enough people and enough um, political clout to make it happen. And, um, and then it was very successful. Nothing, nothing bad happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the next things, every, every subsequent things got easier, you know? Yeah. Um, and I have seen that same thing play out in New York city and other places. So, um, I would say that, you know, usually you pick, you pick some spot where, you know, uh, I, I know that this guy, calpesh in, in Bombay and Mumbai, he was, he was saying that, um, uh, they were trying to get this one waterfront strip turned into some sort of esplanade or, um, you know, bike and pedestrian way because people were already walking there um, and it wouldn't be that hard to like, you know, make some nice crossings of other roads on it and like make it more, you know, um, and I think he was right. I don't know that they've done it or, or been able to do it, but, um, but, you know, picking one thing that's like useful to people um, but also, you know, winnable um, mm-hmm. and just getting enough like organizing and sort of political force behind it to make it happen. Yeah. I don't know. That's my, that's my plug. For... <laughs> it's possible, man.
0: <laughs> it's a great You plan. can do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I expect to show up in India in like five years and it'll be, there'll be no more cars. It'll be awesome.
0: Wow. That's a great dream. <laughs> We'd love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, given that the name of this podcast is the pave the way podcast, I'd like to end it by asking you how do how would you say we change the narrative and pave the way forward from here to achieving a more robust and equitable transport system.
1: Uh organizing, you know, I mean anything that you want in life um especially anything that you want that's in the public sphere or the public sector. It's all about political organizing. You know, it's all about um, starting groups and listservs and um, both in in real life, but uh, also using social media and other means to try to get people who have similar desires as you do together and organizing and trying to get um, people who are sympathetic with you, or even your own members elected to the city council, or elected to um, zoning boards, or um, or or getting a mayor that's sympathetic with your interests into you know. Um, and I think it's about lobbying uh, the highway engineers in your city um, and showing up to public meetings and saying, "Hey, we want some bike and pedestrian accommodations on the street." Um, And it's, you know, it's it's a battle. I mean, there's no sort of um, magic to it, really. It's just, uh, you know, it's just organizing, which is it's sort of drudge work. But uh, one reason that I always go back to it and that I enjoy it is like I've met so many interesting and cool people doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, so like there are a ton of people in my city that I would never have met except that. You know I um, we had to reach out to other people to try to get a bike lane built or to get you know something to happen. and sort of in that process, I met you know like hundreds of people. Um, I'm meeting you right now. I would not have met you if I was not interested in sort of the angle of organ- you know how do you organize to um and that's one of the positives of organizing. and then the other positive of it is. When you get when you win, you're going to lose a lot like I lost and lost and lost for many years. But when you finally win something, it's so sweet. You know, I can go a half a block from my house and like every time I go up there, somebody bikes by on this lane that was like this um, pitched political battle for like six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they don't know. They have no idea how many meetings went into getting that thing you know? <laughs> or like how much energy, which is great. They just think mm-hmm. it's always been there because it's a lot of students use it. Um, and so it's kind of its own reward. You know, if you do effective political organizing um, and, you know, you see the results, especially with things like transportation or infrastructure, it's like um, you you're like, I got that. bike. I helped get that bike lane done. You know, It's like it, it's so satisfying. I, I find it more satisfying than making art. No, you know. Really? Yeah. I mean, what you know, do my cartoons make a difference in the world? Nah, maybe, maybe not. You know, but like that bike lane, there's people who are able to use it and other stuff that we've helped get built in the, in the city of St. Paul um, mm. that, you know um, I won't say that I was an instrumental person in all of them, but I, I played a role. That's the other thing is like organizing is a team sport, you know, and how organized your team is. And mm. um, you know, it, it like is, that's all how it works. You know, I mean, you need people who are good at, at law, you need people who are good at social media, you need people who are good at like interpersonal skills, at like um persuading people to, to show up for things. Um, you know, you, you need all these different um people working together, you know. Um mm-hmm. and and like I say, it's there's just something very satisfying about it when you're able to get things done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the relationships that you make with people, I think are also really, um, really satisfying. So that's, that's, my, um, that's my answer to how
0: <laughs> it's organized. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good way to put it. I think you have to keep the conversations alive. You have to keep, you know, even something like this We're from two completely different spheres in many regards, but this is somewhere where I agree. And there's going to be people all around the world concerned about these things as long as we keep the conversations alive and we continue to mobilize the people that do care and I think what you said the fact that it's going to be bloody hard work but it's doable and
1: and like I say once you start to have at least on a local level when you start to win things uh, you know once you get a couple of these things implemented then the subsequent ones get easier Mm -hmm. Um, you know people get used to the idea that yes being able to cross the street is a human right um you know yes uh it is really nice to be able to bike to work instead of sitting in traffic for an hour um mm-hmm. you know yes like i mean uh, um people uh you know but it, but getting getting those first things done is very hard yeah but
0: well yeah i mean i think we talked about a lot of interesting things today and i it's been really just quite amazing getting your um, Thoughts on all these things. I think it's very. I, this podcast gives me an outlet, gives us an outlet to speak to people, and have all these views in one space together. I think you said you know you you don't know if your art is as influential, and I guess we can't know that for sure. But I looked at some of your some of the art. I mean, it's it's just very powerful. I don't think you need to be in the space to really appreciate the value of what that is. I mean, I, there's one where it's a skull, it's like a skeleton a skull and the parts of the skull are made of cars. And there are some, some of the parts of the skull are falling off and those are driving cars. And I'm saying, I mean, that is, it makes you think, you know, it's, it's got to make you think. And it's, it's really just, it's been an honor having you on here and getting to your thoughts. I'm sure everyone listening will enjoy it. Well, it's, and, uh, it's nice uh, to talk to you. It makes me happy that
1: you are working on this problem uh, in another part of the globe. Mm-hmm. And that there's people working on this problem in other places, you know, it, like I say, again, this is the, uh, an, a positive element of organizing or of, um, is that gives you hope or makes you um, happy to see people, other people working on the same problem, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And I so. hope in five years when you come to India, you could give me a call and we could ride our bikes together in the carless street. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. Wonderful. It was really great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming. Take care. Thank
1: you for having me.